Hi there, listener. Sarah Holmes speaking. Welcome to Learning Day, a journey to explore how we integrate learning in our everyday lives. And this is Season 2, dedicated to documenting what we've learned in 2020. Here's the 10th episode. Hello, everyone. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you how we should end this season of Learning Day, and you replied. So thank you, Ruth, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Carla for your suggestions. I have news. Today is our last individual interview, but it's not a wrap yet. We're finishing off the season with a grand finale where we will interview all the guests. You heard it right. I said all the guests and I said we. So save the date and join us live on August 29th at 6 p.m. West. So it's Porto and UK time. I will share more details about the event soon. So go to learningday.community to sign up to the mailing list and get podcast news and don't miss out. I promise you won't regret it. Now let's talk about today's episode. Today's topic is parenthood, specifically motherhood. The pandemic enhanced the fear and the isolation that all new parents and mothers go through behind closed doors. Our guest has been asking herself, what if we talked about these experiences out loud? What if we didn't feel ashamed of them? If you've also asked yourself these questions in the past, or even if this is totally new to you, this episode is for you. Today's guest is Kara Cooper. We talked about neurodiversity in learning, learning in the open, and the codes of silence around motherhood, parenthood, and shame. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Kara. How are you today? Hi, I'm good, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, me too. I'm very excited to be talking to you today. And this is our last interview of the season. I don't know if you knew that. I knew it was one of the last. I didn't know that I was the very last. Yes, you're the very <laughs> last. And it will be a great one, I am sure. Kara, I actually know that you've been learning something that's really interesting. And especially for me, being Portuguese really touched my heart. You were learning how to tile. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> Yesterday, having never tiled before, I taught myself, which was really exciting. And it was really fulfilling because I'm practically minded and I'm quite able to, you know, teach myself new skills with my hands. Essentially, we just had a small gap in the kitchen. We had removed a large cooker and a large mm. metal splashback. And in place, we had just had this big grubby, dirty patch of wall. And a little while ago, I thought, okay, well, if no one else is going to fix this, then it will be me. So I sanded it and I cleaned it and I painted it. And then I've been looking at this kind of patch that needed to be tiled. And so I bought all of the kits and the tools and the various pieces that I would need. And then yesterday I kind of just thought, okay, well, I'll just have to do it. I'll have to get on with it. And I just started feeling my way around it. So I read a little bit. I watched mm. a couple of YouTube videos and then I just went on. And actually, I just finished doing it this morning and I took a few steps back from it and it just looks so great. And I'm so proud that I did it myself and that it just it happened quite easily. Yes, I saw the picture and it looks great. I've never done that before. <laughs> Honestly, the amount of pride and joy that I've taken from this, I don't know. It was maybe, 
you know, half a meter square. That's all it was. It was, <laughs> it was a really small patch. But today I grouted it and I've just, yeah, I really am. I'm glowing with pride. <laughs> That's beautiful. You also shared a before picture where your daughter was sitting next to you. This is really cute. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with the world and yeah, giving us cuteness levels in the morning. And, and Kara, you said that you're, you're practically minded. Is that how you describe yourself as a learner? I think my learning journey is a really interesting one, actually, because one of the things that I've realized about myself is that actually I have got many different aspects to me, many different interests, many different strands of work. And when I was small, I found learning and education on the one hand quite exciting and on the other hand really difficult because... I struggled with a lot of the didactic teaching methods that I came across in education and learning wasn't always very easy for me. Mm. And perhaps, I mean, one of the things that I have realized since I've become an adult is that I am more neurodiverse than any of us ever realized. So perhaps that goes in some way towards explaining my experiences at school. And also, I think perhaps what it does do is point me towards perhaps some of the reasons why I have always been drawn to practical and creative subjects, because certainly I have always had a real kind of affinity and a happiness, you know, in, in the art room. And I've always been creative. I've always been practical. I've always made things with my hands and been very physical. Um, so I think that was my first love of learning was mm. knowing how to use my hands. And it's something that I think I'll carry through my life always. I just look at stuff and I'm like, okay, if it's a practical thing, if there's something creative, if there's something to be built, if I don't know how to do it, I'm confident now that I can just set my mind to it and with enough guidance, I can learn. That for me, it's probably the opposite experience. I think I'm much more comfortable learning things with my mind and less with my hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And but although I still get a lot of joy from drawing or cooking which is also practical and something you do with your hands and and currently I'm I've started having gym classes with a personal trainer which this this sentence said through my mouth just sounds weird and she really pushes me it's a completely different kind of learning from what I I'm used to and it's so far away from the thoughts that I'm used to yeah uh, and it, it's been really interesting I'm, I'm realizing that yeah doing things with my body are I have a how should I put it a, a limit there a, a mental limit to the things that I learned how to do with my body if that makes sense like dancing even it's like, yeah I'm always saying I'm a terrible dancer but the truth is when I'm doing it I'm, I enjoy it So that, that's where my mind went when you talked about it. <laughs> no, so for me, I would almost say that that might be my third. I think my, the, my first way of learning, my first way of understanding the world was always practical and creative and artistic. Mm. And maybe since, my tw since I've been in, you know, kind of from my 20s onwards, I've been harnessing a little more kind of confidence in my own kind of academic ability, which mm. has been a really nice thing, actually, because... I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 25, mm. I think, and I'm currently seeking an ADHD diagnosis. Mm. Um, and these are, none of these things were picked up in school. So as I said, I had some barriers to my learning in those ways. And whilst I can speak about a kind of practical learning that I definitely undertook when I was small and that I can still do now, this uh, idea of a kind of physical fitness exercise coordination, I'm still not there yet. <laughs> This, I think, maybe could be 
the next step in my journey towards kind of reconnecting with my body in that way, because that's something that I find really difficult. I'm also, as an adult, I'm quite interested in the idea that I might have dyspraxia. What is that? I don't know. Dyspraxia is... It's a different kind of way of moving, mm. of having control over your body in the space that your body inhabits. A story that I like to tell is that when I was small in my school, we used to play rounders, which is kind of a simplified version of cricket. Every single time, there's no exaggeration here, every single time they would put me up in front of all of these people and there'd be, you know, a whole pitch and someone would throw a ball at me and I had no desire to be there. And I would hold the bat and as I would lift my arms to swing the bat, the bat would fly out of my hands. Mm. I, I couldn't keep a hold of it. I couldn't make my body perform. I also have the same thing about not being able to dance. Mm. I can't hold a beat. I can't hold a rhythm. And there's lots of other ways that it kind of shows up as well in other areas of my life, how I write and how things kind of go. And so there's just been a couple of things that have made me think, ah, Maybe it's not that I find these things so hard and I'm just not good at them, but just perhaps I have a different way of navigating mm. the world. And yeah, maybe I think because I was always intelligent and because I was smart and kind of tested quite well at school to a certain point, mm. no one looked for any sense of, you know, kind of a difference in learning, neurodivergence with me. And actually, I find a lot of this stuff really hard. And so as an adult, I'm unpacking what this could mean. I think it's great that we are increasing our awareness of this neurodiversity, mm -hmm. specifically in learning, but in general, but now specifically in learning, I think it would help us um, not let people down. I found education to begin with right at the beginning of my school career. I loved it. And I was an avid reader and I really enjoyed going to primary school. But then as they started to test us more, as the curriculum became, it was about didactic learning, the more that somebody stood up in front of me and expected me to be able to retain information and recall fact, I didn't have the capacity to do it. And actually, the shame is that it really disengaged me from quite a young age mm -hmm. in subjects now that I think are so interesting. And I just never really got a chance to appreciate history or science. And it's not the subject's fault. It's not that area of knowledge, actually, that I'm not interested in. I just couldn't access it from a learning point of view. The English education system, it was very, it was driven towards a lot of test results. Mm -hmm. When I was little, I tested quite highly. So they kind of pushed me at the end of my education to into, you know, kind of the highest kind of spots to test for. And actually, I think my school was being quite driven by numbers. Mm -hmm. I had hit a ceiling where I just couldn't kind of approach learning in that way. And all that it served to do really was I scored really badly, which brought me a whole load of shame. I was so embarrassed. Mm. And then also it just disengaged me with the whole process. So I think I probably got to about 13 and my approach at that point was really like, well, you know, just screw it. This isn't, this isn't okay. This isn't working for me. I'm obviously stupid. I'm obviously, mm. you know, kind of, I was told all the time, you're not working hard enough. You're just not applying yourself. And so I just started shrugging my shoulders and not showing up and I would I would be found in the art room. So when I went to art school, that was a an obvious path for me to follow. But it, it's taken me years to get back to the idea that actually I love all of these things and I just couldn't access them in the way that maybe the majority of the students could access them. I just had a different approach. You touched on so much there. I wrote a couple of keywords. One of them was disengagement. And mm -hmm. this is a huge problem in education. It, it has been for a while, but now it's becoming mainstream. 
mm-hmm. when things hit the mainstream, they obviously get more attention. Yeah. But I was just talking to someone who is a university teacher and she's looking into working in learning design, which is what mm-hmm. I do. And she was saying how she adapted her classes during the lockdown. And she was saying how she's a um, chemistry teacher, how she mm-hmm. created all of these challenges and experiments that people could do at home with household items. And she said that this was the year that she got better grades. Ah. And it's incredible. The year where everyone was just trying to survive. She managed to create a learning experience that actually not only engaged the students, but also mm-hmm. made them learn better Yeah, and learn more. On the other hand, I also know that most teachers, and I understand why, because they didn't have the training, they didn't have the time, they had their own lives to deal with, but most teachers just shifted typical classroom classes to Zoom. And obviously, mm-hmm. you can hold someone's attention for two hours if you're just showing a PDF or a slide deck. So this disengagement has been happening for a really long time. The attention span of younger people and ourselves is reducing. The education system is not paying attention to that. The topics that are taught are just most of the time irrelevant and it disengages people. What it also does is what your experience shows, which is people who are interested who care, who are intelligent. And even if they weren't intelligent, that is not an excuse to just let them go and disappoint Mm -hmm. them. Uh, And this leads to feelings of shame, like you said, of lack of confidence, and it limits people. It limits them in their education, but also in everyday life. Because if you are going through your life with people telling you that you're stupid or that you're not working hard enough, or that you're just not fit for purpose (laughs) for most of your uh, life. It it brings so much that it limits people for the rest of their lives. And I think it's a huge responsibility that anyone working in this field has to try to improve this. It's such a difficult system because perhaps some some of the lessons that we can take from this period of lockdown where so many people have been educated remotely and online is that perhaps we can kind of see maybe the stuff that's not working. Mm. The stuff that's not been working, as you say, for quite a long time. It's not necessarily been born of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but perhaps it's been shifted into focus. Perhaps we've all paid more attention to it. But there are so many children who are failed by, I mean, the way that we teach now, It's something that was developed within, you know, the Industrial Revolution. We are relying on these very old methods in order to approach teaching, but also pastoral care Mm. in ways that they were never, as you say, I think it's not fit for purpose. And it's not the teachers that are to blame there. It's a systemic, Mm -hmm. structural issue. But it's interesting because, of course, as you say, whether a person is or isn't intelligent, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be supported and nurtured by their early education experience. Mm -hmm. Because this is something that I've learned is that we are all shaped by these formative experiences of our early education. Mm -hmm. And it takes a hell of a lot of work and privilege, really, to be able to reach adulthood and perhaps be given the tools and the ability to reflect on that and perhaps try and unpack some of those experiences and those statements to work out what may or may not have been true, may or may not have been relevant. 
certainly I was told by, I had three science teachers that took me through the latter part of my education. And they all told me that I was disengaged and that I was lazy and that I just didn't, you know, that I was making their life difficult and that they just didn't care for me in the classroom. You know, I feel bad now because I had a bad attitude, but I also had a bad attitude because I was kind of othered by the whole classroom experience. I don't, I don't naturally show up with a bad attitude. That's never really been my way of doing things. But it's taken me all of this time to, you know, kind of look at these statements and unpack them and start to think, I don't think that was me being at fault. Perhaps that wasn't them being at fault either. They were within a system that wasn't there to support them, to support me. But as an adult, I honestly think if I were to go back to school again now, knowing what I know, understanding the things that interest me, understanding the things that make me tick, I would love to follow science down, you know, kind of a pathway. When I heard about the Human Genome Project being produced, I was just blown away by how interesting and exciting and engaging science can be. But I never got that from school. It was just a case of learning facts and repeating facts and being taught to pass a test. And it did nothing for me. And it's such a shame. But I have loads of privilege in that I've been, you know, I've had access to therapy. I've had access to all sorts of literature and to people who've allowed me to have the space and the time to reflect on those things. Plenty of people don't have that. And it's a it's a real shame because those experiences may be, you know, they can't be considered in the same way. It's just a damaging experience that people hold because it happens in those formative years. Yes. And it's important that you mention the system. Mm. And, and you've mentioned it twice already. You mentioned how your school was so focused on the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the system does. It, it makes us all, teachers and students included, and parents and everyone involved, to focus on the number. And it does what the system was made to do, which is to produce quantitative results like a factory. And yes, it's very hard to get out of that system when the metric that you're being evaluated on is a number. Mm -hmm. And it's just a number most of the times. The, the other thing you talked about, or that my mind went to when you talked about the system, was the people in the system. And now I'm talking about not necessarily the, the teachers, but everything that is happening around school. So I I have examples around me of people who are really smart, super motivated in other areas of their lives. But their entire life, they've been told that they were not good at school by their parents, by their colleagues. And because these people also went through the system, right? And so it's, it, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like yeah. it keeps feeding also on the stories that the people around you tell you until someone from a slightly different background tells you, no, actually you're not good at learning and studying because you never really have a chance to do it. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn this as a skill mm -hmm. and give yourself that credit that you can learn how to learn and you can learn how to potentially, I don't know, devote more time to your mind and less to your body like we were talking about. And yes, it's, it's been very present in my life. I hope you're enjoying my chat with Cara. And before we go back to it, here's a message from Franca a member of the Learning Day community. The weekly reflection sessions are my sacred block of time dedicated only to me. As someone who loves journaling but can never make herself do it consistently, the reflection sessions provide me with much needed facilitation, direction and accountability to become aware of my thoughts in a safe space. I leave the early sessions energized and the night sessions relaxed, but always 10 times lighter than what I arrived with. Consider joining one of the weekly reflection sessions this Thursday. Go to learningday.community to learn more and sign up. Now, 
back to our chat. Tara, we are talking about learning methods, and there's a, a specific one that I know you are practicing, which is learning in the open. Can you tell us a bit more about this and what you are learning about and why it is important for you to do it in this way? Well, you've caught me at a really interesting time in my life, actually, because I'm in a real period of change, which is exciting. It's quite scary as well. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I'm learning at the moment is I am transitioning a career. I trained as a set designer. I worked in film for a couple of years and then life and various things shifted me in another direction. So since probably about a year ago, actually, kind of during the lockdown, it must have been the first lockdown mm -hmm. last year, I started studying. And so I'm transitioning away from set design and working in film and more towards interior design, which has always been one of my kind of deep loves. And so that's very exciting. And that's a type of learning that's happening. It's a self-directed course because it's based in London and I live in Scotland. There's a hell of a lot of learning that's going on. Just me in my bedroom with books and a computer and I'm teaching myself lots of new skills, which is quite hard. But it's also it's interesting and it's engaging. And then I've also had a kind of greater strand of learning that's been going on for me really as well since I became a parent. My eldest child is five and a half now. I've been on quite an interesting learning journey here since my second child was born. He is coming up two now. I had a high-risk pregnancy with him, which was totally unexpected, but scary and quite challenging. I had a traumatic birth and I then ended up suffering with postnatal depression. Mm. And then not long after that, also the pandemic hit. So there was lots and lots of stuff all going on. And actually it was just... I guess it was just incredibly difficult. It took me right back to where I was after my first child was born, which was also just, I was kind of stuck inside figuratively and also literally because she was a winter baby. The weather wasn't good. I was very kind of scared. I was all kind of caught up in my own head. So both the experiences that I had after my children were born were incredibly difficult. And rather than feeling like it was something that was okay to talk about and to maybe kind of seek help over, I just kind of thought, and I guess maybe, sorry, this comes back to what we were saying about the, the kind of systems of education that mm -hmm. we're kind of placed into and also the approach sometimes that we have to work. And I think women especially, we've all um, kind of taken on these messages, which is if you just work hard enough, If you just keep going at something, if you kind of adopt the well-researched kind of good girl conditioning that a lot of us are taught, then you'll overcome the problem that you can find a way and you can think your way around it. And a lot of this stuff happens behind closed doors. So here I was struggling the first time and then the second time and the second time I'm in, I'm in a pandemic. It was just so difficult. I couldn't work out what to do with these babies. That wasn't the baby's fault. They were just doing what they were doing. They were just, you know, being these tiny brand new little beings. But I just found it to be a really hard, really scary process because I was so worried about making mistakes. I couldn't work out what were the right decisions. I didn't know how to kind of reach out, how to ask for help, how to say that I was struggling. And it wasn't really until last year. So at the point where my youngest was about to turn one and I suddenly started talking to people in a more open capacity and just saying, actually, this has been so hard. I'm struggling. It's kind of quashed my sense of self. It has made me question all of the, all of the things that I kind of thought that I'd been well prepared for. And I really was only admitting that to other people because I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know kind of what else to be doing with myself because I was having a hard time and I was just trying to navigate my way out of this. What I didn't expect was to have described the experience of so many women. 
Sarah, I guess now is kind of a time that we might create the connection between ourselves. So yes. Sarah, you and I met when we did the um, upfront course with Lauren Curry. Yes. And so I can't remember how many people were on this course, but it was an online platform and there were weekly Zooms. And within these weekly Zooms, there were women talking about their experiences of work and life and coming from all of these different perspectives. And I kind of felt that I just didn't have a seat at the table because mm-hmm. I had just been off work, as it were, being a parent. I had nothing to bring. I had nothing to add. I had nothing interesting to say. And then eventually I spoke up and I kind of said all of these things. And I said, I don't even think I've got a place in this conversation because that's all I've been doing with myself. You know, it's nothing Mm -hmm. big. It's nothing exciting. No one's paying me for it. And I was really ashamed of my place in society at that point and how I'd struggled to be a parent as opposed to just taking to it really naturally and just really loving it and it enhancing my whole life. And it was just a moment of confession for me, but then so many people flooded my inbox and so many people were saying oh god no this is the exact experience I've had too and so many people talked about the struggles that they have kind of personally the struggles that they have going back to work how becoming a mother in this case changed their sense of identity their sense of self how unsupported they were going back to work and then as I started to look at this in a wider sense and I started to unpick my experience but also the experiences of those around me I realized that motherhood and parenthood and being a primary caregiver, whether you're a mother or a father, or you're falling outside of those kind of categories into a non-binary area, whatever it is, those people who are primary caregivers are often othered by this industrialized society, by this kind of capitalist structure that says, actually, in order to participate in society, in order for you to be a kind of, you know, paid up member that is being um, useful and satisfactory and contributing You need to be kind of out there in the workplace. You need to be earning money that actually there's no real celebration, not a true celebration of what it is to be looking after children, to be growing them, to be birthing them, to be raising them. It's not something that we value in our society. And I know there are lots of people talking about this, but also for all of the chat and for all of the websites and the forums and the apps and the books that are being published and the comedy series that are being made on television, we're still not kind of addressing the shame that seems to go along with being a parent. And that's when I realized that if we don't start saying this stuff out loud, if we don't create these conversations, and if we don't show up visibly and say, you know, it's beautiful, my children are so wonderful, they have given me so many things, I wouldn't swap any of that, I wouldn't take any of it away. But it's not all it's not being kind of just, you know, joy and walks in the park and laughter and you know kind of wandering in their beautiful little presence because whilst all of this stuff has been going on it's also kind of hollowed me out from the inside and we have to say that out loud that's what I've realized I have to say it out loud but we have to we have to allow everyone to kind of bring it out into the open so I think this unpacking of what it is to be a parent and mother I think it has to happen openly and visibly and we have to allow people to have a warts and all approach to it because otherwise what we're doing is we're kind of pushing everyone back into their own little kind of separate bubbles and their own houses and we all of us take our shame away and we all take our fear and our embarrassment and our pain and and it's making us ill it's making everybody really ill and really unhappy and it's not serving us as a society So this is what I've been kind of unpacking and this is what I'm trying to bring out now into an open conversation. Part of my doing that is a kind of meta learning, a meta kind of narrative, I guess, that I'm embodying because I am still very much kind of on this journey. I don't have 
the answers. I don't have these things figured out. But I'm trying to be visible and I'm trying to be open and I'm trying to allow these things to kind of happen in a more naked sense, I suppose, because I think that's how we can create conversation and connection and community. And that's what we've all been lacking, I think, as modern parents. It's a big answer. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming to Kara's TED Talk. Bye. <laughs> I have so much to say. I knew that I was going to give you a big answer when I got home because it's a big subject. When I say when I say it's a big answer, it's not the length; it's the depth <laughs> that I am talking about. It is, it is a big answer, and there's so much. One thing that I made a connection with was what we were talking about before about how no one talks about how people learn differently and mm -hmm. how neurodiversity may affect that and how we choose to ignore it or either because it's too difficult to handle or because we are truly ignorant to it. And I think in, in the case of parenting, it's similar. It's simply no one talks about it and struggling with it seems to be the person's fault It's so recent that we've started talking about this. Obviously, I was much younger, a few years ago. So <laughs> I, I was not around people who had small kids. But I, I do have a friend of mine. She is my age. And she was the first one to have kids from our group. She's always wanted to be a mother. So she's very clear that she wanted that. Her and her husband, but they both wanted it. And when the first one came along, it was so hard. She had no idea what to expect. She was yeah. completely taken out of surprise and mm -hmm. despair. That's, that's me. Yeah. That's exactly how it happened. I was the first one to have children. It was considered, it was purposeful, it was wanted. I had got to a point where I felt like I was genuinely ready to parent. So it wasn't a decision that we made lightly. You know, my husband and I, we'd got married, we'd been together for a long time. We were both in that place. And I had read a load of books. I had spent years reading articles in the paper about co-sleeping, about breastfeeding. I'd read academic studies. I didn't feel like I was going into something lightly. I had given it all of the thought that I could. So my daughter was born just before my 30th birthday. So I wasn't, I wasn't young, young. Maybe if I'd have had another 10 years, I would have seen more people do it. I would have seen more people go through it. But I, I really did feel like I had done enough work to be in a place where we could start a family. And I mean, one of the things, this is only something that I've recently kind of come across in my own journey, is that, um, so my daughter was a breech, which means that she was essentially upside down. She was in the upside down position for birth. And my hospital didn't want me to try to have a physiological birth. And so she was born by C-section, which was totally fine. But it really kind of shifted. It wasn't what I was expecting in my head. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to have a water birth. I was going to have a home birth. And instead I ended up in hospital and I had an operation. The, the, the difficult thing about that was that my husband was sent home at a particular time in the day. So six o'clock, seven o'clock, he left. And it was just me in a hospital with a baby. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And she was so brilliant and beautiful and I felt that I had been kind of cleaved in two when they handed her to me it was this really I described it as a really kind of seminal experience and it was it changed me forever 
but also that first night, I think in a way was quite a good indication of perhaps what was to come because I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, should I hold the baby? I, I really need to sleep. But at a certain point, is it okay to put the baby down? Is she safe? She didn't have a name by this point either. So it was just the baby. And for a long time, I just held her and just looked at her and just thought about how wonderful that she was. And then eventually I thought, okay, I will have to put her down because I'm, I'm so exhausted. I think I had a lot of morphine in my system, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I'd had major surgery that day. So I kind of put her down and tried to sleep and she didn't want to be put down. She was a brand new being out in the world. She wanted to be held. She wanted to be, you know, kind of, she wanted to know that she was safe. And so all night long, I had this funny thing of, is it okay to put her down? Is she safe? I have to, because my eyes are rolling into the back of my head. And I remember in those first sort of couple of nights just thinking, I don't know how to serve her needs and mine. And then I guess I looked at her and I was like, well, she's the most important thing right now. She is the only driving force I have is to take care of this kind of tiny, beautiful little newborn baby. So I'm just going to have to put my needs to one side. And I guess that's what I have to do now that I'm a parent. And so I was I was learning literally on the job. And I was like, right, I'll just have to give up all of the things that I need to make sure that she's safe and to make sure that she's well. And it was, of course, this very innate instinct that causes a parent to do that. Yeah. But a combination of that and maybe a combination of fear of failing a child, of all of the pressures that come externally through the media, through, I don't know, there are so many expectations out there of what it is to be a parent. And so I just remember in those very early days thinking, okay, well, my needs just have to shift to the bottom of the hierarchy, either explicitly or implicitly. We are told that to be a good parent and a good mother and I'm centering on the word mother not to exclude other people, mm. not to exclude non-binary folk who are perhaps, you know, kind of falling outside of this mm -hmm. terminology. I guess when I'm saying mother, I mean any person that isn't a father because we are kind of told and we are taught that in order to do these things, you need to shift your needs to the bottom of the hierarchy and you have to be selfless. And that's what a good mother or a good primary caregiver is. And I tried to do that for a really, really, really long time. And I had a baby that just for her physiology, she cried. I think she had kind of, you know, digestive pain. Mm. She was uncomfortable. Feeding was a difficult thing. I had lots of difficulty breastfeeding. But again, there was so much external pressure that says, okay, this is the, this is the thing you need to do. This is what you need to do to give your baby a good start. And so I was kind of thinking, okay, I've got to do the things by her. I've got to do everything right by her. So it can't be about what I need. It doesn't matter if I need sleep or it doesn't matter if I need time away or it doesn't matter if I need to have someone else kind of listen to me and help me carry this load. Because actually as a mother, that's what I have to do. And that was just there. You know, that thinking was just there. It was there on the first day and I don't know where it came from. Some of it was from me, some of it was perhaps from my conditioning, from my kind of family upbringing, some of it was perhaps, you know, kind of, I think the media has a lot to answer yeah. for in these senses. And it's taken me six years to realise that if I don't put my needs at times right at the top of the hierarchy, right at the top of this kind of, you know, hierarchy of needs, that actually no one is well, nobody is good. And it's not about abandoning my children, but it's about taking time away. And it's about saying, actually, I have to take care of myself in order that I can do other things. And then it goes one step further than that, because, of course, I think this is a message that we're all getting better at receiving. But that also, actually, 
in taking the time and the effort and the care and, you know, and all of the things that I've done in order to raise children over the last five years, I have predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly been at home looking after the kids for five years. The message that I don't think we get enough is that what we're doing is vital work. So it's still seen, certainly in the UK at least, it's still seen as a a bit of a jolly, maybe a bit of a holiday. This kind of work that predominantly women are doing, it's not serious. It's not worth being paid for. It's not deemed to be very much by society. And because of that, we have our needs at the bottom of the table anyway. We've got a society that doesn't kind of care to support women, whether they're staying at home, whether they're returning to work. And all of this stuff, actually, it just, it it drives up the shame. And then we're taught to kind of, you know, hold it in and to kind of keep it tightly bound and behind closed doors. And so again, as I was saying, in terms of, you know, taking stuff out and talking about it in the open, that's the vital conversation I think we need to be having at the moment. How have you been unlearning all of this? I mean, I've had a bit of a deep dive into myself recently. Mm. I've been trying to engage myself with platforms and with people who recognize the work that I've been undertaking, who celebrate the work that I've been undertaking. I have been paying attention to various psychologists who are experienced and trained and talking about, you know, kind of the experience of parenting. Mm. And I also think one of the things that I've been doing is I've been trying to pay attention to the ideas of shame, of vulnerability, and trying to unpick some of these very long-standing patriarchal ideas about what it is to be a mother, about what it is to be a woman. I've been using a kind of feminist framework to try and negotiate my way through all of these things that I've been taught. And along the way, that's where the unlearning has happened. So the idea that women should have it all, can have it all, the idea that, you know, kind of a mother is selfless and good and kind and sweet. I'm trying to unlearn all of the ideas that really don't kind of service all of these frameworks and structures that have been put up around us that actually are rigid and punishing. So that's been the things that I'm kind of trying to unpick at the moment. And I'm pausing because I'm, as I'm trying to kind of think about it, I guess I'm still very much in this unlearning moment because there's so much out there. There's so many messages that we are told that I think I and we all need to start collectively unpacking. And when we talked before this conversation, you used a, an expression that I thought was very interesting, which was codes of silence and how you're on a mission to break those codes of silence around motherhood and, and uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned a few, but I would, I would like you to really drive those points home. <laughs> What other codes of silence are you hoping to break? Oh, that's such an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I encountered during my second pregnancy was I found out the sex of my baby. And it threw me for a little while because I had had this very kind of firm image in mind of having another little girl. And I found out we were having a boy. And for a little while, it just took me back to a place where I kind of thought about the relationships that I had with my dad, which is strained and we don't, I don't have contact with him anymore. And I think perhaps that and some other stuff, it kind of sent me through a bit of a loop. And for a while, I just had, I guess, kind of, you know, the, the terminology for it now is what we refer to as gender disappointment. I don't know if I would call it gender disappointment, but I found out I was having a boy and I had thought that I was going to have a girl. And it just took me a really long time to compute this kind of shifting change 
And everyone I spoke to, all I was trying to do in that moment was just, I was just surprised. And I had, from myself, I had borne the very kind of fixed notion of what my future was going to look like. And then all of a sudden I had to undo that. And in order to undo that, I admitted to a few people that I wasn't feeling totally great about it, that I, it just wasn't what I thought was going to happen. And the shock and the disappointment that people expressed in me, that I was anything other than just 100% completely overjoyed and marvelling and privileged every single day at what it was to have life growing inside of me. And isn't motherhood and pregnancy just a privilege? I was made to feel like I was a monster for just having this moment when I was like, oh God, no, this isn't what I thought was going to happen. Because essentially everyone was just like, but it doesn't matter. You know, there's a funny phrase that is often bandied around when women are pregnant and prior to birth, where women are taught to say, oh, as long as the baby's healthy, I don't really mind what happens as long as the baby's healthy. As long as the baby's healthy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't matter if my mind and my body are ripped apart in this process. If I have a dangerous or a painful or a traumatic birth, as long as the baby's healthy. And nobody is questioning that... The ultimate goal of a person having a baby is for there to be a well baby at the end of that process. So that's always something that I think needs just addressing, but we can park that idea because we know that to be true. What we actually need to look at in this kind of really unhelpful message is what sits underneath, which says, oh, that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I mean, I know women who have been through all sorts of physical and mental trauma and the trauma matters as much because there are two beings in that process. So there's the baby, but there's also the person giving birth to the baby. And ideally speaking, you need both to make it out okay. So when we say, oh, you know, the selfless mother, just as long as the baby's healthy. And actually what happens to you doesn't matter. And that's been one of the biggest taboos. And it starts at the point of conception. And I mean, if we look at other parts of the world, it's just eye-watering the way that the pro-life argument is constructed. But I guess that's another conversation. But it goes on. I think there is a real taboo in a woman being anything other than caring and glowing about the baby and the process that she undertakes. And the idea that somebody could say, this has shattered me. This has physically broken my body. This has changed my career in a way that I didn't think it was going to be changed. I don't like this right now. I feel mistreated. I feel lonely. We don't really like that stuff to be kind of said out loud because actually it's meant to just be this beautiful privilege. And there's the whole thing of, oh, you signed up for it. So you signed up for it, therefore you need to, you know, you, you should just be willing to take whatever you experience. Yes. And it's those codes of silence that I think we need to blow right open <laughs> because motherhood, parenthood, like anything, is nuanced. It's like every other part of life. Some yeah. of it's beautiful and profound and wonderful, but a lot of it is also, you know, kind of scary and embarrassing and hard and lonely and othering. And that's the stuff that we don't give enough of a platform to, I don't think. I'm very honored and humbled that you are using this platform to share this. And I hope you get more platforms to share it on because you use the word nuance and I had written that down here on my notes. And I think this is about mothering and parenting, but I think we can extend that to any part of our life. Mm. And it is about inconsistency because humans are inconsistent. We can't just be one thing or the other. We can't no. just be happy or just be sad. <laughs> 
No, we're, we're, we're complex beings. Yes, we're not a machine, uh, zeros and ones. I, I'm not a mother and, and I'm hearing you and I'm thinking, first of all, I'm learning so much from this conversation. I think I'm learning not just because I'm not a mother, but also even if I were... <laughs> I probably wouldn't have had access to this, but I'm also learning because I'm connecting dots with my own present and past experience and this pressure to be consistent and pressure to be very clear on what we want and be very clear on how we behave and be very clear on what we should expect from us and the others around us. It's so much pressure. And if we accept that we are inconsistent, that our experiences are inconsistent that we can be two things at the same time there will be much more peace in the world I think so I think so as you say I mean inconsistency actually is a beautiful word because it's true we are we're inconsistent we are imperfect we have no control over a lot of the things that happens yeah. to us it's interesting I'm linking a lot of this back to the beginning of our conversation where we spoke about schooling structures and schooling systems I think there is so much to be considered as we think about, say, life after the Industrial Revolutions and as we started to create these wider structures and these wider kind of systems in place. And actually, if we try and kind of mechanize our experience of life too much, if we try and fit everything into boxes and make everything kind of neat and binary and palatable, as we so often are encouraged to do, we're the ones that feel it. We're the ones that are failed by that system, be it motherhood, be it mental health, be it education, be it work. And it's not rocket science, but <laughs> it's not spoken about enough, I don't think. So it's lovely to be having these conversations. It's lovely to be bringing it out into the open and to try and kind of take some of the stigma away from it. Tara, we are reaching the end of our conversation and I have the usual question for mm -hmm. you. <laughs> What is learning for you? So learning for me happens in my body. This is what I've realized. So it's thought, it's conversation, it's reading and writing, it's the unpacking of ideas. But something that I've only kind of realized recently is that when I hit on something, when I can hear or think something that's so kind of pertinent, that I know it's rerouted my brain a little bit, that I know it's had a real effect, it changes me. And as I'm on this kind of, I'm right at the very beginning of this journey to connect to my body in ways that we spoke about earlier, I have realized that actually learning for me, when it truly happens, I can kind of feel it internally. So that's a nice thing. So I think it happens outside of us in lots of different ways. But truly, when it comes back to us, when we learn something, I think that's an innate experience. And I think we feel it within ourselves. I can see that. And sometimes we even feel it and then ignore it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand times yes. Constantly. Yes. <laughs> and if you could ask our listeners one question, what would it be? I would ask, I've spoken a lot about motherhood. And I've spoken a lot about codes of silence. And this isn't something that happens in a vacuum. It's really interesting to unpack what are our codes of silence. Mm. So I would ask, what, what are your personal codes of silence? And how can you start to kind of unpick them and to break them apart? And in doing so, can you start to shift some of your shame out into the open? And is there a place for a more visible conversation to be had around something that previously you've been taught to be quiet about? Let's end on that challenge. <laughs> nothing, you know, nothing much. Yes, exactly. Easy. <laughs> Just a little thing. <laughs> I trust that our listeners and the people on the Learning Day community, they will take this challenge. And for one thing, I'm sure they can do it. 
Thank you for guiding us through this. It's been such a lovely opportunity to speak with you. I've got so much from it. If you want to get in touch with Cara, find out how on the show notes. I would also love to hear from you. Go to learningday.community and reach out. If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app and, as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening and see you next time.